Welcome to Christ Church Anglican. We hope that you were blessed by today's sermon. Good morning. So maybe you've had this experience before. With me, it happened oftentimes with my kids, which is kind of a theme. We kind of have these lessons that we learn, and you hope that they've learned everything that you've taught them. Like, the chances are there's probably some that's gone through their heads out one ear, and then it's gone. So you kind of raise them up. They get to be driving age. They've gone to driver's ed. They've taken all the tests, and we never fudged on anything in the test. Like, we, we, they did it. They passed. They knew what to do. They knew the answers. It was, it was clear. But then you get in the car to drive them to the place to take their actual driving test and their, all their stuff. And what do you do? You begin to cram the information back into their head. Okay, when you get there, you know you have to do this. When you get, don't forget to do this. And when you parallel park, if you bump this, like you're done. You're, you begin to go through all of these things again and again. Just make sure you do it. Not that it's head knowledge, but that you put it into practice, that it actually happens when you get into that place. You do it with the first time they get in the car and they drive out of the driveway to go on a date. And you begin to tell them all the things that you need to do. When you meet the parents, make sure that you look them in the eye and shake their hand. Be pleasant. Make sure that everything's on time. We know. We know, Dad. But until it's actually in practice, it doesn't really count. It, it's not, it didn't happen. You may have all the answers. You may have it in your head. But unless it happens, does it really matter? As we come to the end of Philippians, the chapter 4, we begin to look at this. And I feel like a sense that a little bit of this is happening with Paul. This book and this doctrine that's been taught out, that's been emphasized, what we need to be like, I believe, is what begins to happen in chapter 4. He's been teaching. He's been encouraging the Philippians. And this knowledge has to come to practice. It has to be lived out. He's challenging the church at Philippi to not only know proper doctrine, but to live it out in a real way. And all of these encouragements and teachings that he has shared throughout this letter are wrapped up in these few verses as life is lived and the church lives itself out. What Paul says in the span of these verses is critical to the members of the body to agree, to settle disputes among themselves, After that, he says, rejoice in the Lord. And he says it twice. He means it. And after that, he says, let your reasonableness be evident to everyone. He's going to say, hey, also don't be anxious. We don't have anything to be anxious about. But everything in prayer, go to the Lord. Be thankful. Make sure that you keep your mind on the things that are lovely and true and commendable and excellent and honorable. And do all these things. These are not random thoughts that he's putting on a page. They're connected to everything he's been teaching. Paul is pressing in on the church at Philippi. You have to take what's up here in your head and have those things, all of it, drop 18 inches to the heart so that it begins to move out into the world. That truly our minds and our hearts are in unison and our lives reflect the gospel being lived out in the world around us. Pastor Ray Ortland uses this phrase, gospel doctrine and gospel culture. And in many ways, the challenge for each of us, for our church, is the same as it was for the Philippians. It's not enough just to have the gospel doctrine, but to have a gospel culture 
the way that we live it out as a body. Not just to know what's right, which is important, but to live it out, that it lives out around us. Doctrine is the stuff of our intellect. It's the stuff of concepts. It's the stuff of belief. It's invisible stuff we hold on to, and they're right and good and necessary. Outside of true doctrine, true theology, then we're lost. So it's important. But as a church, we must hold on to all of these, the sound theology and sound doctrine. It's not enough to just have a strong capacity for truth if it's not lived out. We as a church should also be concerned with our gospel culture, who we are. How does this gospel doctrine find its way from our head to our heart, out into our feet and lived out in the lives of others? It's essential to have both sound doctrine and lives that live out a gospel culture. There's some themes in Philippians that we've seen over and over. Paul encourages to rejoice, to have unity. Chapter 2, Paul tells us to think of others better than ourselves and to have the same mind, that our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. But it is not just the mind that Paul has talked about. It's living it out as Jesus did, a life of service and sacrifice to others. So as we come to this passage, we see that even with the maturity of the church, it is not without fault. It begins with resolving conflict in the church among two obviously influential women in the church. They're at odds. And we don't know what the conflict is about, but considering Paul's other letters where there's doctrinal correction, there's some sense that this isn't a doctrine issue, that there's, there's a conflict that is different, that maybe it's personal. It's a conflict that may have started small and grown. Whatever the case is, it's important to call them by name and enlist others to come in to mediate, to make sure that this goes right, to make it right. It's not labored over by Paul, but it's a critical issue to have this issue resolved. He wants to see the church in Philippi maintain unity, just as he said in chapter 2, to pursue unity. And, and here in chapter 4, it's lived out. He addresses discord in the life of the church. Paul urges Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. He's pleading with them to lay down their disagreement, even though it's clear that these two women were strong believers. In fact, Paul says that they labored with him side by side in the gospel, along with a man named Clement. Unity in a church and among believers is the utmost importance. Think of this. Even unity, discord, and fighting, infighting between two people begins to be at the very fabric of what the church becomes. It can tear a church apart. Sides begin to get drawn. Whose side are you on? Conversations happen that become gossip. Things begin to divide, and this person's right and this person's wrong. And Paul emphasizes there's no place for that. It must go away for the gospel to be lived out. Unity in a church among believers is so important. Without it, little things are big. Not only does conflict have a tendency to scar the people that are involved, it scars everyone. And it grows bigger and bigger. It destroys the witness of the church and its believers to the world around us. And then Paul moves on from the conflict. And he gives this remarkable picture of what it looks like. How do we move from conflict? Here are the things that we do. Conflict is resolved quickly with a mediator, and then we move on. And what are the things that we hold on to? What's remarkable to me in the passage is the change of directions from three to four. 
Paul goes from addressing conflict, giving encouragement, and this setting the stage for living it out, not just talking about it, and ultimately the bigger reality of what brings us together and not what divides us. So in the next two verses, the focus is on joy. Paul tells the church to rejoice on the heels of addressing conflict. As there's trouble, he says to rejoice. Look at what he says in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. I want you to see this. When does he say to rejoice? Always. Always. He repeats it. He wants them to get that rejoice always. He means this. He doesn't say rejoice when it's good or when the circumstances of our life are good and life is smiling on you, so rejoice. He's saying rejoice in all things, even what's difficult, because the Lord is good and will meet you in every situation. He's not encouraging them to rejoice. He's actually commanding it. How do you command people to feel a certain emotion? It seems impossible, right? But is is joy really an emotion or something that dwells within? Sometimes you might tell someone, don't be sad, be happy. But even when you say something like that, you know you have no control on what they experience or what they're feeling. But for the Christian, finding joy, for us, finding joy is different. Because your ability to rejoice doesn't rely on generating an emotional response. Rather, it resides in what God has done for each of us. Joy is an emotion you muster. Joy is much deeper. It dwells within and it comes with the confidence of knowing Jesus and recognizing the beauty of what Christ has done for you, how he's taken away our sins through his son, Jesus Christ. The Christian can be commanded to rejoice because they're not rejoicing in anything that we have done. We're rejoicing in the one who's already done it. Paul commands believers to not only experience joy internally, but to externally demonstrate joy. How? By demonstrating the reasonableness to everyone. What does Paul mean by this? He's referring to a spirit of kindness. One commentator calls it big-heartedness. Again, a charitable spirit flows out of your relationship with Christ. Your ability to get along with others shows that God is at work within us, that we are being transformed more into his image. But here's what's incredible about joy to me as I read this passage over. It resides in our hearts, and it resides in the work of Christ. And it's not dependent on what we do or our circumstances. Paul makes it abundantly clear that our joy should not be controlled by the events of our lives or what's going on around us. It's easy to let our circumstances dictate our happiness. It's temporary. But please hear this for each of us. Our source of joy is the work of Christ in our lives. Verse 4 is even more incredible when you consider what Paul's circumstances are. He's imprisoned. His life was hanging in the balance. He experienced horrible circumstances where he was, and yet he is calling for joy. Paul had joy in the Lord. We've all had difficult experiences and circumstances that seem at times hopeless, but the hope of the Lord allows us not to be crippled when things are hard, but allows them to press on. Paul addresses this in verse 6 and 7. He writes, The Lord is at hand. 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, everything, in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Because of our relationship with Christ, because of your relationship with Christ and his presence in your life, in my life, we don't have to fret and be anxious. We should turn to God in prayer. There's even a promise associated with taking our cares to God. You'll receive the peace of God that passes all understanding, and it will guard your hearts and minds. There's an obvious implication from these verses that I want you to hear. God wants you to go to him in prayer. He wants you to bring to him the things that are weighing on you. The truth is the all-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign creator of the universe wants to hear your prayers. Let me say that again. The all-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign creator of the universe wants to hear your prayers. And here's the secret to prayer. It's about aligning our will to the will of God rather than trying to convince God to do what we want him to do. God will do what is best for each of us, even when it's maybe not what we want. But we can still be confident that his care is what is best for each of us. In many ways, prayer is giving up control of our lives. We're admitting our inability to handle the situations in front of us. That we can't control our circumstances. And God's complete control over all things, has complete control over all things. And there's peace in the midst of that. Jesus said, do not be anxious in Matthew 6. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow or, nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Or consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. How does Jesus end this passage, though? He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Too many times we can live our lives trying to get our way. Maybe a better way to say it is you're trying to accomplish your will. And even when you get your way, rarely is it satisfying. And do you really feel peace? Do you feel the peace of the Lord? Or do you just get your way? It's because true peace, the peace that passes all understanding is only found when you bring it all before the Lord. The peace that passes all understanding is rooted in your ability to say, not my will, but yours be done. Submitting your desires to the will of God is the first step towards the life of righteousness. Look at what Paul says in verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is any worthy of praise, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul lists these sets of virtues that should always be on our mind. The Christ that dwells within us gives us these virtues. This is where we begin to see the head and the heart align. And as our head and heart align, our actions move out into the world. Paul is truth, honor, justice, purity, lovely. What he means by lovely is agreeableness. 
commendability. And then he really summarizes the statement at the end of verse 8 by saying, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Dwell on these things. Let your heart and your mind begin to be transformed by these thoughts. He's encouraging about to think about these things because morally and spiritually excellence, spiritually, to be morally and spiritually excellent. Christians pursue a righteous thought life because we are saved. A commentator writing on this passage said, The virtue of which the apostle speaks is the fruit which grows on the tree of salvation. We should dwell upon the virtues that are pleasing to God out of love to him. And then in verse 9, it says, What have you learned and received and heard and seen in me? Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Don't just think about them. Put them into practice. This is who we are. Don't cram it all in there and go, I've got all the knowledge. What do you do with it? You put it into practice. You live it out. If we are thinking about these virtuous things, these virtues will begin to be lived out as our outward expression of Christ in us. And we are assured that he is always with us. Our joy and peace only comes through submitting to God's will. Our hope in Christ is to not just have a righteous thought life, but to live our lives that reflect Christ and are lived out out of love for him. If you live your life in humble submission to God, you will be filled with joy and peace that only he can give. As we do these things, we move from having knowledge of doing what is right to living it out to the world around us. In essence, our gospel doctrine becomes our gospel culture. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information, feel free to visit us online at ccanglican.com. We hope you will join us again soon.